It is uh, our benefit and blessing to be able to to gather here around the Lord's Word, and, and uh, man, I just I am thankful for it. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter eight, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter one, verse eighteen through twenty-four um, this morning. We're starting a new series. We're beginning a new series today, over, and, and we're going to be in this over the course of the next twelve weeks. It'll actually take us up to Christmas, and then we'll pick up with a a different perspective, but some of the same things after the new year. Uh, but we're going to be working through uh, these next twelve weeks. We're going to be working through topics on our church's statement of faith. And so there's lots of reasons we need to do this and can do this, but I just want to share a couple with you kind of as you're getting settled in the passage and kind of getting comfortable where we're at. So so first, it's good for us to remember and be able to talk about and know why it is we believe what we believe. So a lot of times we, we, we grow up around church, we kind of catch things instead of learn things, and we just make assumptions and, and this is what I believe and and maybe it's not really biblical. Um, we talked about that a few weeks ago, folk theologies that kind of develop. It's good for us to stop, to step back, to remember what it is we believe and why we believe it. It's, it's good for every believer to be able to think these ways. It's also, as we continue to expand our ministry and we give away teaching opportunities, um, we, we really want to ensure that each of you are informed about the essentials that we stand together on, that unite us together. The reality is these these things that we're going to go through over the next several weeks, they don't just unite us as a church, they unite, most of them, unite the, the church at large, have through the ages and for the, the times to come. And we want you, as you're sitting in classes, learning, listening and learning from other people, we want you to be informed. It's actually one of the responsibilities of the church, not just the leaders of the church, but the members of the church. It's important for them to distinguish between what's essential, right doctrine, good doctrine, and wrong doctrine. And when you hear wrong doctrine, it should be called out. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that we wouldn't be letting someone teach if they didn't have agreement with us in the essentials. But should it ever happen that uh, a wolf sneaks through and gets to teach a class, we want to do what we can to avoid that. Ain't that right, Brandon? No, I'm just kidding. Just totally played. I shouldn't have called that out. Sorry. I just saw him out of the corner of my eye. Strike that from the record. I didn't say that. Here, here, let, let me just read this. So, so this is from our statement of faith. It's just the, the preamble or the opening paragraph. It says, and it's not on the screen. I don't think I put it on the screen. Let me just read it and you listen. In declaring our trust in God's word, we recognize that there are many positions within Orthodox Christianity which can be debated or discussed. However... The essential doctrines of the Christian faith will allow, I'm sorry, let me slow down. However, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith allow no room for discussion or debate. It is on these foundational doctrines that the kingdom of God has been built, continues to grow today, and which form our lines of demarcation as part of that kingdom. So what we're going to be talking about over the next 12 weeks, by and large, for the, for the, for the vast majority of the next 12 weeks, it is all what we would say are essential doctrines that unite us together as a church, unite this local church to the broader church, knowing and recognizing that even in this room, there are a variety of perspectives around secondary, tertiary, and you can draw that out for as many words as you know that extend that line. I don't know any more past those two. 
The reality is even in this room, there are secondary, tertiary, and all of these different views of doctrines. That's okay. And actually, we can kind of celebrate that. Because what we're united around is what is essential, what is main and plain. There are certain doctrines that are so clearly foundational, so plainly evident in the text, that they are what we would call essential. They are close-handed, if you will. We cannot let go of them. If we let go of them, we cease to be the church. But on the other hand, there are those open-handed issues that we can discuss, debate, encourage that discussion and debating as we seek to understand and more broadly have a, have a strong understanding of God's word and his truth. And these have been held throughout church history. And if they're in this room today, it's okay. And so as you hear someone teaching from a perspective that maybe is slightly different than yours as far as these secondary doctrines... As long as there's unity in these essentials, we're saying this is okay. You do not need to be threatened because someone holds a different view of baptism than you do, so long as Christ is the one who led them to baptism. You do not need to be threatened by someone if they hold a different view of the Bible than you, whether it's covenant, uh, dispensational, or new covenant theology. You do not need to be threatened by that so long as at the core of their theology, Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins God is God and there is no other, right? We don't have to be threatened by those things. We are not a church because we are covenant dispensational or new covenant theologians. We are not a church because we are baptizing believers. We are a church because we are God's people saved through Jesus Christ. That is the core essential doctrine. And as we seek to expand our teaching ministry and seek opportunity to just make his name known, I think, we think, it's important for us to discuss this, to go through it. Our first point of study is God. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, read verses 18 through 24. Uh, I'll read them, we'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. The word says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Let me just go on into this next verse. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We believe God is, always has been, and always will be. Humanity may suppress, ignore, and reject this essential truth with their lies. And yet, God is. Really, we can just stop right there. Doesn't require God is. Doesn't matter what we think. Doesn't matter what we believe. 
doesn't matter what lies we hold to, what things we worship. God just is. Belief in, this, in God, belief in some form of God, some idea of God or gods, it's common in, to, to most cultures in the history of mankind. You go to the deepest, darkest places of the jungle and you find people worshiping something. You, you, you come to, the place, to, 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 to a place like America where it's highly educated, where, where we have displaced a need for or a desire for God with our understanding and science and, and um, being able to try to give an answer to everything we see. But even today, even today, the majority of Americans hold some belief about God. In fact, according to a poll, a Pew Research poll from 2017, the graphics should be on the screen behind me, 80% of Americans say that they believe in some form of God. 80% of Americans. This is two years ago. A vast majority of people saying that they believe in God. But if you look at the poll, if you look at the poll, I don't know if you can see the, because the, obviously you can only make that picture so big. The blue says 80% believe in God. Do you believe in God or not? The question, the answer to the question is yes, 80% do. Some believe in God. 56% believe in God described as the Bible or described in the Bible. 23% believe in some higher power or spiritual force. But even in the no category, there's 19, 19% of people say, no, I don't believe in God. But 9% of those people who said they do not believe in God still believe in some form of higher power. The vast majority of Americans, this is literally, I do the math, 56, 23, and 9. What's that add up to? Somebody fast. 89. There you go. Nearly 90% of Americans, only 10% of Americans do not believe in God in any form. And let's just be honest. Even if they're atheists, that's still a view of God. A view that there is no God is still a view of God. We all have a perspective. We all hold a view. And the vast majority of people still believe that there is some form of higher power. We, and this has been true, not just in America today. This has been true for all of, all of history. Whether you look to the, to the polytheistic religions of the ancient Greeks or the Romans, they had many gods. The, the pantheism of historical Native American religions where the, the earth was essentially God and, 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 and everything is in some way divine. The, the animism of tribal Africa that we see played out every time we step into Senegal. What, what, the, the cold and distant creator of deism. Or how about the higher power of Alcoholics Anonymous? In some way, we have always been professing that there is some God, some kind of God. The problem we face first and foremost is not an existence of God problem. We are not having to convince the world that some kind of God, some higher power, some bigger being exists. They buy into the example or to the existence of some kind of God. What most people in history have struggled with the truth that they have suppressed with their unrighteousness, as Paul says in this passage. The lie that they exchanged for the truth, as Paul says in this passage. The gods that they have worshipped are gods of their own creation. Instead of the God who created. 
this becomes even more evident in a, in a second poll. This done by Ligonier Ministries. They do this every, I think it's every two years. Um, th- just done last year, 2018. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. Ligonier, Ligonier Ministries is a great reformed resource. Um, R.C. Sproul was kind of the, the founder of that, or at least the co-founder. But his name is uh, uh, clearly and closely associated with it. Um, but, but anyway, in this poll, they find that 95%, 95% of evangelical Christians in America strongly agree that there's one God revealed in three persons, the Trinity. This would suggest that 95%, the vast majority of evangelical Christians believe in the God of the Bible. In fact, it should be surprising to us that there's 5% of evangelical Christians that don't believe in the God of the Bible. That should cause us some... Why isn't it 100%? But 95% say this. However, (laughs) however, 73% of those same evangelicals that were questioned strongly agree that Jesus... That that Jesus... Let me me read exactly what it says. They they believe that Jesus is... um, Where's it at? For, he's the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of those same evangelicals, 95% are saying, oh, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the God of the Bible. 73% of them say Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. That is not Christian. That is Jehovah's Witness. That's Mormons have a view similar to that, that the Christ is a created being that is cultish. The, the Trinity is God in three persons. We're going to deal with this in the next week or the week after Jesus is the second person, the second person of the Trinity, equally God to the father. And 73% of evangelicals suggest that he is a created being like you and me. That's shocking. I believe in the God of the Bible. But you can't be believing in it. That would be like me telling you that my favorite color is red. In fact, I I wore this red shirt today because my favorite color is red. That's crazy. If you're colorblind, this shirt's black and blue. (laughs) It's shocking. Over half of these same evangelicals, 95% of evangelicals believe in the God of the Bible. Over half of these evangelicals, 51% agree that God accepts worship of all religions. Now, let's just think about what Paul just said a minute ago. Let's just go back to this passage. Why is his wrath being revealed against mankind? Because they have denied the truth, they suppressed the truth, they have rejected the truth, they have ignored the truth, and they have worshipped the creature instead of the creator. God accepts right worship to himself. And yet 51% of people who claim to believe in the God of the Bible would suggest that he accepts religions or all worship from all religions. When in fact God's wrath is actually being revealed against mankind because... We have worshipped something that resembles man, something that resembles the created 
order instead of him. Listen, the point I'm trying to make is, is that just because we say we believe in the God of the Bible, that doesn't necessarily mean that what we believe is in alignment with what God has revealed to us in the Bible. I, I don't want to suggest that these people are all outside the church and lost. I'm just suggesting that we have a work to do, a job to do, to speak and teach and point to the truth of what God has said about the Bible or about himself in the Bible. Rather than forming our views of God based on what we see in the world and forming our understanding of what God is because it makes us feel good and warm and soft inside and we need to know the God who is. The problem we face both in the world and in the church is not convincing people that God exists. He has made himself known. The reason, I believe the reason that people have been celebrating God uh, or looking for some form of God all throughout the history of mankind is because he has put the knowledge before them. He has made it clear that he exists and instead of turning to him and seeking his revelation, they make gods for themselves to worship. The problem is not an existence of God. It is the existence of the true and living God who has made his eternal power and his divine nature evident for all to see. We as a church, we unite around this foundational and essential truth. If this isn't where we start, we lose everything else. There is no gospel if God is not who the Bible says he is. There is no hope. There is no salvation. There is no opportunity for forgiveness of sin. In fact, why why bother with right or wrong at all if the God of the Bible doesn't exist? We believe God is. The God who has revealed himself both in his creation and in his word. We believe he is. We believe he always has been and he always will be. He is eternal and he is knowable because he has made himself known. Not because we had it upon ourselves. In fact, the the passage that Kara read just a minute ago spoke of our blind eyes and our dull hearts and and just an inability for us to really understand. We don't know him because we're so smart. We know him and he is knowable because he has revealed himself and made himself known. We believe this God is. Humanity may suppress, ignore, and reject this essential truth with their lives. Yet, God is. My heart, my desire for you is to know this God and proclaim this God and thereby worship this God. Because he doesn't cease to be God. He doesn't lose any of his identity. Just his invisible attributes, those invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, they are not diminished in any way. But yet we become responsible for worshiping something other than him. So, we believe God is. We believe the God who revealed himself in the scripture. That's who we believe in. The God who Paul is referring to in this passage. The God who made himself so plain to his creation by and through his creation. Who is clearly worthy of, of the whole world's worship. That This is the God who we believe is. The, the one whose wrath is being revealed against mankind as Paul says. This is the one we believe in. This is the God who is. Now let's be honest. Let's just deal with the passage Honestly, Paul did not write this with with an intent to prove God's existence. 
In fact, this is the beginning of his argument that God's wrath is actually justified, that proves the point. And he works beginning here all the way through to chapter 3, to the middle of chapter 3, almost the end of chapter 3. He works to show that no one is worthy of anything from God except his wrath. That we don't deserve anything from God. We can do nothing to earn anything from God. And God is not obligated in any way on our behalf. This is the beginning of his argument for the absolute beauty and the absolute need that we have of the gospel. He's not writing this to prove God's existence. But he is proving this to help us know God. It's in the last part of chapter 3 when he begins to... To to reveal that this worthy God, this God who's worthy of worship, who hasn't been worshipped, has provided a way of salvation to unworthy people. But you only get that if you actually read the whole thing. And you look at the God who's revealed himself. But Paul, like every other point in the Bible, Paul, every other passage of scripture, Paul can't write about the gospel without assuming the existence of the God who makes the gospel possible, who is the source for the gospel's grace and the gospel's power. He, he can't write about the gospel but, but, but by writing about the God who did the work of the gospel. This is true everywhere in the Bible. The Bible opens the very first verse, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. It doesn't tell us who is there or who he is. It just says God created. Oh, well, this tells us something about him. He's the creator. He's the source of all things. He's the uncaused cause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They only exist because God exists to create them. Moses, writing in Genesis, wasn't seeking to prove God's existence, but he couldn't talk about what God was doing without assuming that God was there. And that the God of the Bible that was going to reveal himself in his creation was the one creating it. And when he was sending Moses, Moses, the one who wrote Genesis, is also the one who wrote Exodus, who went into Israel to, or went into Egypt to lead Israel out. When he is having his burning bush moment and he's like, well, hey, who did I say sent me? Exodus 3.14 tells us the answer. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's answer for his name, who sent you? I am sent me. Self-existent one, not dependent on his creation in any way sent me. His nature, his identity, his purpose, everything about him self-existent and self-expressed. The very basic and foundational truth that exists in the universe and in the scripture The reason of all that the universe exists, the reason that we gather on a Sunday, the reason that we have any hope in this world is that the God who created now rules over everything. He is the true God. And believe it or not, He loves you. And He wants you to know Him. So rather than stay hidden from you, instead of running off into some corner... Instead of distancing himself from his rebellious creation. He shows himself. This is the very reason the vast majority of history has always looked for a God. 
I've not landed in the right place because I've sought, I've sought the creation. But because God has made himself so plain. God has made himself so well known. This is the truth that humanity is going to suppress with their sin. I'd rather have my own way than hear what the God of the Bible has to say. I'd rather do what I want to do instead of what it calls me to do to obey him. This is the, this is the truth that we ignore in favor of a lie. Like, God's going to send people to hell. I don't really like that one. Let, let's, this one says everybody ends up in heaven. I really like that one. That one makes me feel a little bit warmer and fuzzier inside. That's the God I know. Yeah. That's, this is the truth that they reject when they worship gods that they've created instead of the God who is. And even though he's not writing with a purpose to prove God's existence in this passage, the God of the Bible clearly is assumed by Paul. And knowing the God that he paints this picture of, it strengthens our ability to know and believe that, that, that God is, yes, and that the God of the Bible is, yes, and that he is worthy and, uh, of our honor and gratitude. That's not where it ends. That's not the end of it. God is, yes, we believe that, but we believe God is eternal. He has always been, always, he is right now, and he always will be. He exists eternally. Paul calls it out. Look at it in verse 20. Actually, you can look at it in verse 19, beginning in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal, listen to that, eternal power and divine nature, eternal, everlasting from start to finish. It's been clearly perceived. We've not agreed with it, maybe. We've ignored it, maybe. We've rejected it, possibly. But it's clearly out there. We can see it. He is eternal. He is existent. He is always there. God has always been. Regardless of your changing circumstances, regardless of your changing emotions, regardless of your changing perspectives, God has always been. And this is, not, this, this is one of those things that we've got to deal with. There's not a God in the Old Testament and a God in the New Testament. I hear that, not, I haven't heard that in our church, but I hear it from Christian people all the time. Well, the God of the Old Testament. No, 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 you don't understand. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Let me give you a clue. Let me just give you a, a hint to this. You realize in the Old Testament, what you're seeing is the full picture of God's wrath and his grace as he deals with a very wicked and sinful people. You are seeing it all. Because he doesn't immediately smite them, but he continues to promise them there's deliverance. And yet, over and over, they feel the weight of his wrath as he sends them off to be judged. You know why it looks different in the New Testament? Because all of that wrath has been swallowed up in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no more wrath for God's people. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The problem is, is that the world running around out there, they pick all those New Testament verses and they say, these apply to us. No, they don't. 
If you're outside of Christ, they mean nothing to you. You're still living in the Old Testament. You and I have the promise of Christ. We have the promise of God's grace because his wrath has been completely swallowed. The cup of God's wrath has been completely drunk by by, by Jesus Christ on his cross in our place for our sin. It is one God who has always been, will always be, and is right now. This is the perspective of all the scripture. Psalm 92, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is no, hey, when the Old Testament finishes up, we know there's going to be a God who replaces you. Eternally, He is God. Before time began... Before God said, let there be light, he was God. Before he brought the mountains up out of the sea, he was God. And he always will be God. Revelation 1.8, on the other end of the Bible. And just so you know, this is Jesus saying this. In case you're thinking that Jesus is a created being and you feel offended because I said that a minute ago. Here's some evidence for you. Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was. And who is to come? The Almighty. The first and last letters of the the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega, indicating that this God is the beginning and the end. He has always been. There is no beginning with Him. He has only ever been. He just is. That's why when He said, what's your name? He said, I am. There is no end with Him. We don't come to testaments and decide in in different agreements or different time periods and all of a sudden there's a different God. No, there is one God. He's always been. This This is the truth that humanity will suppress with their sin. That they're going to ignore the truth that they're going to ignore so that they can continue believing lies. And it's the truth that they reject when they worship the creation instead of the creator. But that doesn't change anything about God. He is. He always has been. And he always will be. I don't think this is true of anybody in this room. But if a person doesn't like it, they can't change it. They'd be better to figure out that he's God and they're not. This God is the, is the God that we rally around at this church. This is the God we preach and teach. This is God we call to each other to believe. And as members of this church, this is the one we say, yes, this is God. We believe God is. We believe God is eternal. We believe God is knowable. Look again at verse 20. You can, again, you can look at verse 19 for this. For what can be known about God, right? It's plain to them. He's made it plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. He's revealed himself. But, but, but notice this next phrase in verse 20. For his invisible attributes. The things that can't be seen, right? Things that are invisible. You can't see invisible things. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. The idea here is that God has made what's unknowable, knowable. You ever seen an invisible person? Neither have I. How do we know they exist? I don't, we don't know that they exist. We don't know that they don't. Never seen one. Hey, d- d- does, does the wind exist? 
Well, yeah, the wind exists. We know. In fact, we just had a hurricane go up the eastern seaboard. We know the wind exists. We know it does great damage. It causes lots of pain, lots of trouble, kills people. How do we know it exists? Can't see the wind. We can see the gentle breeze blow through the leaves of the tree, and we feel, feel the cool on our skin. We can see its power when it blows at 150 miles an hour and tears down buildings and causes great harm, devastation. Listen, brothers and sisters, God, who is invisible, has not hidden himself from us. It says, it says that his invisible attributes, his, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. There is no excuse for not knowing this God because he has made himself clearly, plainly, Evident, even though he is invisible. He's not hidden himself in any way. He has shown himself to us in his creation. I love Psalm 19, 1 through 4, as it speaks to this. The, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Brothers and sisters, look around. We don't walk up on a, on a car sitting on a sidewalk and think it accidentally happened there. It just occurred. We don't walk into... If, if I took a bunch of leaves and threw them out into the, into the middle of the... Uh, to the sanctuary, nobody would expect them to fall in a straight line. In fact, if you walked in and saw them in a straight line, you would assume someone did that. Because God has always been showing himself. He's always been revealing himself. This is what we would call general revelation. It's not specific. It's not giving us all that we could know about God. It's not even being very specific about how God is both creator and savior. But he is making himself known. Everything about what he is doing is making himself known. The theologians, they've come up with all kinds of categories. We don't, I'm, I'm going to skip past this because we don't have time for it. I can talk to you about it afterwards if you'd like. There's just different ways that, that theologians come to this stuff and they, they categorize it and they talk about it. But, but let me just read to you a quote from John Calvin who, who writes this. For who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are our wont to do with little children? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not much express what kind of being God is as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. You see what he's saying? I, I, I think it was R.C. Sproul that, that mentioned this in one of the books I'm reading as, as we work through this. I think it was R.C. Sproul that, that said, hey, God's speaking to us in our language. He's making sure that we can understand and know and clearly perceive what can't be known. He is knowable because he has stooped down and like a parent, baby talking to their child. He's talking to us. In some ways, this is general revelation. In some ways, it's specific revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 speaks to this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God has provided a very specific revelation as he has spoken through the prophets. We know in the New Testament that he picks up with the apostles and the prophets. But it's the, uh, the, 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 the specific revelation that they gave, but especially in his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In him we meet God, the sovereign God who is eternal, the God of the Bible who is knowable. In Jesus Christ we meet him, the perfect and fullest expression, clearest expression of God's identity and nature spoken to us in a way that we can perceive him. Just think about that. Jesus coming, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, living in such a way that we can meet the Father is God's way of speaking in our language so that he is knowable. We're not going to know him completely. He's infinite. He's eternal, right? But we can know him sufficiently. And we can know him personally. He's our God. He is mine, and I am his. I know him, and he knows me. I hear the voice of my shepherd, and I understand it, and I desire to listen to it and follow it. We may not know him completely, but we can know him sufficiently, and we can know him personally. Humanity, they're going to suppress this truth with their sin. They're going to ignore this truth with their lies. And they're going to reject this truth and worship the creation instead of the creator. But that doesn't change the fact that this is the God who is. And this is the God we know. And this is the God in whom we believe. This God who is, who is eternal and is, in, and is knowable. We believe knowing God. This God is an essential expression of our faith. It's essential because not knowing that God has revealed himself will lead to worshiping some lesser God, some God of our own creation instead of the God who created. We must believe in this God. Our faith must be placed in this God. This is not blind faith. This is not without some measure of proof and evidence. We all know that there's a God. We've talked about that. We've seen evidence in the creation. We can look around and see that the God who created is God. We can look to a scripture and see that this God is knowable. This God is eternal. This God is sovereign. But let's not mistake that there still is a faith required. This is the God who we must trust. It is essential. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11, if you're not familiar with it, is a passage that speaks to the faith of God's people going all the way back to Abel. Here's, here's the thing. This, this has to be the God we believe in. Because we can't find a God through anything other than a faith in this God. We can't know Him. We can't know anything about how He works. We can't, we can't discern anything about Him without believing in this God and trusting in this God. 
And what happens? What happens is not only do we not know God, but as Paul says, if, if we dishonor, dis, disconnect, disbelieve, dis, uh, disown, suppress, reject, or ignore the God who is, the rest of the passage tells us they knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a compounding problem. See, when we rejected the truth of who God is and rejected the truth that God is knowable, that God is eternal, when we have rejected that this God who is created is God, our foolish hearts have darkened. We're what we say is wise, claiming to be wise, we actually become fools. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We quit believing truth and we start believing lies and we worship the creature instead of the creator. See, only a right theology, only a right theology will lead to a right and acceptable and God-honoring doxology. Oh, there's all kind of people with theology. And I don't care how accurate it is. If it doesn't lead them to worship God, it is in some way doing them a disservice. Because it's rooted in who they are and not the God who is. We've got to know him. We've got to believe in him. We've got to trust in him because only a right theology will lead to a right doxology. How do we do that? Well, I want to think again about what Hebrews told us. That we know him most and best and most intimately and personally through his son, Jesus Christ. But it's not just the writer of Hebrews that tells us this. Paul, who over the next three chapters is going to make the case that there is no reason that God should save us, but he does provide salvation. He comes to Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one deserves this. No one deserves anything from him. In fact, the one thing we've earned is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, I've earned death. I deserve death. God's not obligated to give me anything. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he has given me a free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. Because I have known him through Christ. In fact, this isn't just some small thing. This is the promise. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved for with your with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the God we believe in. This one who has always been, who will always be, who has said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And hey, by the way, it happens to be Jesus who is saying that, who has revealed himself in the things he has done in his creation and in the man he sent to put on flesh and dwell among us. Or in his son whom he sent to put on flesh and And dwell among us. And he says believe. Believe. That God has raised him from the dead. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.13 tells us. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Will be saved. 
It's not a maybe. It's not a could be. If you call on him, you will be saved. But it's not just about salvation, although that's a beautiful piece of this, that we get saved. See, Romans shows us that what God is doing in saving people is actually restoring worship. We start in chapter 1 with the reality that worship is broken. We have worshipped everything but the God who deserves it. But after expressing the gospel, after bringing this all, showing us how we can be saved through Jesus Christ, as God has revealed himself through his son, believing in him, Paul comes to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God is about saving you, but more than that, he is about putting you in front of him in a way that brings him honor and glory, because that's what you and I were designed to do. And until we do that, nothing else makes sense. This is the God in whom we believe. I hope you know him. If you don't, I hope you heard what I said about Jesus Christ. Because in meeting him, in trusting him, you will come to know the God who is eternal, knowable, And the God who says, if you believe in me, you'll seek after me, you'll find me, and you will see that I reward those who come after me. Let's pray.